Uh, good morning. My name is Jordan, again, and I'm the adult ministry pastor here at Seoul. And for some odd reason, I feel like there's an important football game happening today. I've been seeing some uh, shirts around here. Uh, who's going to win that game anyways? Is Winnipeg going to win? Anyone? Yeah? How about Saskatchewan? Anyone think Saskatchewan's going to win? Oh my goodness, that was too close. That was way too close. So we're in Winnipeg here, so we're going to do that over. And I want to hear some love and respect brought. Who's going to win that game? Is Winnipeg going to win? What about, let's get into the life lesson today, as we're about to join into it. Oh, ouch, ouch, ouch. These Labor Day weekends are so much easier being in Winnipeg. When I used to pastor in Saskatoon, I used to take a lot of, um, a lot of uh, abuse out there, so it's, it's, it's great being in a safe place today. Thank you for having me. But uh, it's a privilege for me to open the scriptures this morning and to be able to bring forth the life lesson. Uh, Pastor Jerry did an excellent job last week talking through Matthew chapter 9 as we looked at what it is that we need to bring to God and leave it there. And I just really felt like we had a great time here um, bringing things before God. But we're going to pause in our Matthew series just for a little while, the Upside Down Kingdom. We're going to take a little bit of a pause. We just finished chapter 9. We will be getting back into chapter 10, but we're going to take some time over the next few weeks to talk about vision, talk about mission, and talk about other things. And so this week, um, as I was praying and preparing about what to talk about, my mind kept going back to the book of Jonah. And so this morning, we're going to pause in our Matthew series and take a little look at the book of Jonah, if that's all right. Um, the book of Jonah is listed among what are known as the books of the minor prophets. And it's interesting that this book finds itself under that category, the prophetic category. I used to hear that and think to myself, how is Jonah a prophetic book? But the more I've read it, the more I've studied it, the more I've looked into it, I feel like it's fitting that it finds itself under that category because I totally believe that this book speaks to our times today. And it speaks to what we experience here on earth today. And so, as we get into this book, let's look at a couple passages and get started. So in Jonah chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, your phones, or you can look at the screens. Here we go. Let's read. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for the port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Let's stop there. As we begin to read this book, we are confronted with this idea that Jonah is what we will call this morning a reluctant prophet. God desires to use him. God desires to speak through him. But Jonah, for some reason, and we're going to find out the reason very shortly, is reluctant to allow this to happen. He, this is not something he signed up for. This is not something he wants to be a part of, necessarily. And so Jonah, rather than carrying out God's command and going to Nineveh to give God's message, he ends up going in the opposite direction and runs off to this place called Tarshish. And the scriptures say that what he was trying to do is he was trying to run away from the Lord. He was trying to flee from the presence of God. You see, in Jonah's mind, in his worldview makeup, he thought that there was this place that he could flee to that was void of the presence of God, where he could run to, where he can escape God's presence and go off and do his own thing. And it, for him, it was an ideal spot that you only get to by ship, and it's called Tarshish. 
It was this place called Tarshish. You see, Tarshish was a popular vacation spot where people visited. I think we have our own equivalents today. Uh, some of us, when we think vacation, it's a picture like this. We just think, wow, rest, relaxation, Hawaii, the Dominican, all sorts of different places that we wouldn't mind just taking off to for a week, maybe two, especially when it's cold outside, and spend some time. You see, Tarshish to him had an element of, yeah, let's go there. Why would we ever think of going to Nineveh? And so right at the beginning of this book, it brings forth an interesting thought for us today. Because to Jonah, Nineveh was a place of wickedness, wickedness and darkness. And as you continue to read in this book, and we're going to look a little further, in Jonah's mind, the people in Nineveh didn't deserve forgiveness. They didn't deserve anything good to happen to them. And yet Tarshish was this nice, desirable spot that people went to. It's a place you can vacation, and apparently it was a place that you might go to, in Jonah's case, to avoid God's leading on your life. And so I asked the question just off the top of our minds this morning. Where would you expect to find God least? Think about the world that we live in today. Where would you expect to find God the least? Would you expect to find God the least in a nice sunny place like Hawaii or the Caribbean? Or perhaps a dark place, such as the red light district of Amsterdam, or the slums of a major city. Where would you find God the least in your mind? Where does your thinking originally go when you think of the presence of God? This is what the book of Jonah challenges us on. It challenges our thinking. It challenges our impulses. It challenges where we naturally want to go. I think for most of us, we think of finding God in the nice places of life. The places where you wake up in the morning, the sun shines, you know, breakfast is sent up to the room, and you thank God for the moment that you're able to be there. You thank God for the, the moments that feel good and everything around you feels right. I think it's just a natural inclination to think that the divine dwells in the light and sunny places of life. But it's funny how this story is about to reverse that thought. Don't get me wrong, God was in Tarshish too. You can't really ever escape God's presence. And, you know, that's one area where Jonah's thinking was way off. You can't ever escape God's presence. But basically, a thought of Jonah's that we see through his actions is this, is that if you want to flee the presence of God, then go off to your ideal spot. But if you want the presence of God, then go to Nineveh, because God's people, whom he also loves, are very much there too, in Nineveh. And so in other words, and more practically for us today, if you want to experience God and his presence, the one place where I guarantee you'll find him, where you'll be sure to find him, is in the dark, shadowy back alleys of the soul and of this world. Because the light always shines in the dark places. It's fascinating that the divine dwells even in the dark places of our world, and maybe your world. And he's there for us too, even in our own dark places of struggle, even in our own areas where we seem to feel like he's void, or that he's left, or that he's not there. Don't ever get the idea that God is only in the sunny and good places of life, for God is also working and bringing light to the dark places of this world, and into your experience as well. And so if God is in the places that perhaps we'd least expect him to be, 
that it's not surprising that it will probably be shocking and scandalous to many of us when they find God in the places that we least expect him to be in. Places that maybe our version of God, you know, he would most definitely avoid or shake his head at or write off or, or, or not darken the door of. And so we need to look no further, and we've been going through the life of Jesus as we've been talking about the upside-down kingdom in Matthew. I'm not going to completely stray away from that today. But we've been looking at the life of Jesus, and we've seen that people were shocked a lot by whom he chose to spend his time with, by whom he befriended, by whom he gave value to. You see, Jesus hung out with tax collectors. He, he, he embraced a man named Zacchaeus, whom people really didn't feel like embracing. He was approaching women and having conversations with them. That was, you know, really culturally out of bounds. He was demonstrating love and care for a woman who was caught even in the act of adultery in his time on the earth. If you want the reference, you can read about that in John chapter 8. And Jesus spends time with those that the religious teachers of the time would have thought God was certainly avoiding or perhaps wanted nothing to do with. You see, Jesus' love for people, all people, brought many truths to light that took the religious leaders by surprise. And namely was this, that all sin is equal. That we have all sinned, that we all have the same problem at the end of the day. And so this really, the way Jesus lived his life, the way he approached others, the way he embraced other people really serves as a warning to the rest of us who are reading. That we dare not, like the Pharisees, measure our own goodness by trying to compare it to how bad everyone else is or to the shortcomings of other people around us. For we all have the same problem. All of us are equally in trouble. You see, Paul in the book of Romans says it like this, all have all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None is perfect, but we have all missed the mark. And yet Jesus has come, not just for good people, not just for nice people, but Jesus has come for all people. And that's a message that we're going to see shine through in the book of Jonah as we look ahead here. Jesus shows us that there are two types of sinners— the first type are people who think that they're righteous. They're not in touch with the fact that they also have flaws, that they also have shortcomings, that they also have sinned. And the second type are people who just straight out know that they're sinners. And so there's two options here. We can either pretend that we don't need him, that we're doing okay, especially compared to all those other people out there who are doing all that crazy stuff. Or we can acknowledge our need for him. You see, no place is this better illustrated than in the story in Luke of two guys praying at the temple. And one's a Pharisee, a religious leader, and one's a tax collector. And, it, you know, it really shapes how we communicate to people. You see, the Pharisee points to all the good stuff that he does. He literally brings out his resume. You know, I've been serving, I've been tithing, I've been keeping the law. Thank you, God, that I'm not like this evil tax collector next to me, not like those people. And in his mind, it was his righteousness, it was the good things he did that he pointed to as a way to get acceptance before God. But the sinner, the tax collector standing next to him, the scripture says, wouldn't even look up to heaven, but bowed his head, beat his chest, and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus declares at the end of that passage that it was the tax collector with that kind of attitude and approach who was justified that day. 
because we have all sinned and we are all in the same place as far as that goes. Are you with me? And so let's look at a chapter in the book of Jonah that I believe has some prophetic implications for us today. And so let me give you a quick recap of the book of Jonah because we're going to be skipping to the end here. And so God asks Jonah to go deliver his word, and Jonah doesn't want to, so he skips off from where God wants him to go. And God asks him to confront a big and important city called Nineveh, to which Jonah says, I would rather not do that. And so he leaves and goes the other direction to this place called Tarshish. We just read about that. Where all sorts of shenanigans ensue, involving, you know, storms and giant fish. And if you've read the book of Jonah, you're going to read that Jonah gets swallowed by a fish and has a moment of repentance, has a moment of change of heart, you know. He's, He's kind of in a moment where he doesn't really have a whole lot of places to go at that point, right? Because he's inside a fish. And he decides he will do God's will. And so the fish spits him out onto dry land. And after all of that, Jonah decides to wisen up in response to God's request. But he only resolves to do the job half-heartedly. He will issue the word of God to this nation that he doesn't like. But in his mind, he knows the outcome that he wants to see. He knows how he wants us to all unfold, that they get what they deserve, that after Jonah shares God's word with Nehemiah, that they face punishment that they deserve, and perhaps in his mind they've earned this punishment. And so Jonah is going to do this, but he's reluctant. And what's ironic here is that after Jonah shares God's word with the city Nineveh, he becomes instantly overnight the most successful prophet in all of Israel's history. And there is repentance happening, and everybody in the entire city of Nineveh, from the king down to ordinary folks, are repenting. And it's incredible, and something amazing is happening. Jonah took God's word to this place called Nineveh, and all of a sudden, everyone is repenting. Everyone is admitting they're wrong. And it's incredible. And there is repentance. There's a change of heart happening among what was described as a wicked nation. And they have seen their wrong, and they're turning to God in repentance, and it's a great thing by all accounts. And so we are going to pick it up there. Jonah chapter 3 and verse 10 reads this. When God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. Let's keep reading. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. And then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. 
When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would, better, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand, and also many animals. That'll be our text today. You see, here we have a guy named Jonah doing God's work because he knows he should. And he just had a dramatic encounter where he was thrown off a boat into the sea, and God provided, you know, a fish to give him shelter, and he had a moment of repentance, he had a change of heart, and he went and did God's will, he gave his word, but he's not necessarily doing God's work from a heart of joy here. In fact, he's actually sitting there waiting for Nineveh to be destroyed. Nothing would make him happier. He's letting his human desire take over, if you will, and he's missing what it is that God is trying to do. And he would have felt justified in doing this. So a little history about Nineveh, just in case you're wondering why Jonah is so angry at this city. Nineveh was in Assyria. And they were Israel's biggest enemies at the time. They, were, they treated the Israelites with absolute, you know, evil intentions. And Jonah is waiting for them. He's sitting there waiting for them to get what they're due. To get what's coming to them, if you will. The prophet Nahum speaks of Nineveh with these words. It says, Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. That is speaking of Nineveh. That's what they were known for at this point in history, at least to Jonah, in his mind. And Jonah takes God's word to them, and the unexpected happens. They repent. They see their ways. They see their evil, and they turn to God in repentance. They turn to God in surrender. And now Jonah is angry. He's ticked off at this point. In verse 2, he tells God why he wanted to flee to Tarshish. In Jonah 4.2, he says, Because he knew that God was gracious. He knew he was compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. And you know, it's kind of funny when you just read that by itself, because, you know, I don't know about you, but the characteristics of, of God that just make me the maddest are his love and his grace, right? I'm kidding, in case you're wondering. You know, I've never ever heard someone talk to me about how the love of God just ticks them off and just makes them angry, and that's why he was scared to go and preach this message. But not only is Jonah angry that God has acted this way towards his enemies, but now he reasons that he's better off dead. And this is how upset he is about it all, because Jonah wanted to see justice done. Bad actions should result in bad consequences, he reasons. He reasons that he has a good point, and by human logic, he actually seems to. But in this case, he's dealing with a God who's beyond human logic who's bigger and badder, better, better, not badder, than all we can imagine. And God says to him, essentially, God essentially says to Jonah, you know, I'm sorry that this is what you want, but I don't offer that to you, but I am looking out for everybody. I give good gifts 
to everyone. Jesus later said things like that he causes his sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. That he causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. Both good things, both needed in those kinds of territories for crops to grow. That's how God works. That's how much God loves. And I'm sorry if that upsets you, Jonah. And so this book of Jonah, I believe, puts a spotlight on three things for us today. I just want to share those with you. The first one is that the book of Jonah really affects our view of God. It really affects how we see God. Who has an iPhone? Anyone? A couple of us, right? I think I see two hands, so... No, I'm kidding. But who had the original iPhone? Anyone remember having, like, iPhones when they first came out, right? And now that, like, operating... The phone probably wouldn't even turn on now at sort of date, right? It just wouldn't... The, you know, the software just wouldn't even work. But when the original iPhone came out, one of the top-selling video game applications created for the iPhone was this application called Pocket God. Anyone remember that? Anyone ever play with that before? Here's the description of what the Pocket God app was all about. It said, what kind of God would you be? Benevolent or vengeful? Play Pocket God and discover the answer within yourself. On a remote island, you are the all-powerful God that rules over the island. You can bring new life and then take it away just as quickly. Exercise your powers on the islanders. Lift them in the air. Alter gravity. Hit them with lightning. You are the island god. And I remember when I saw this app, I, my first thought was, well, that's kind of crazy. But when I heard about this app, it got me thinking. And it got me wondering if, gee, I wonder if there's a little part of every one of us that perhaps wishes we could run things and we can control things. Wouldn't it be nice to make the rules, make decisions, and decide how things should go for everyone? And the app really had a strong following after it came out. It was, it was in like the top apps that were downloaded as soon as the phone was released. But I think to myself, when I look back at this, I thought to myself this past week, the scary thing about a game like this is having to ask the question, do any of us actually live like this in real life or desire to live like this? Do we want to live like this? Or... Do we secretly desire to have this kind of power over people or over the decisions that God's going to make towards other people? Do we also create God in our own image and live as we please? You see, Mark Twain said it like this. He said, God created man in his own image, and man, being a gentleman, returned the favor. Anne Lamont takes it a little deeper, and she says it like this. She says, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. You see, in the book of Jonah, we discover a guy who wanted God to be like him and think like him. God obviously thinks like me. He obviously dislikes the same people that I dislike. His preferences are just like mine. He has compassion on those that I have compassion on, and surely he's going to punish those whom I would punish. And though we see Jonah acting this way about God, there's a moment here where this prophetic book, I believe, calls us the caution. And we need to be careful that we don't create God into little versions of ourselves, too. Because God is infinitely beyond the little boxes or images that we make of him, isn't he? Are you okay with God being God? Are you okay with the fact that he doesn't necessarily need us to manage his business? And that he can be trusted, and that his ways are perfect, and that he is good. The same God who extends grace to Jonah many times in this book will also extend grace to Jonah's enemies. 
the Ninevites. We serve a God who doesn't just tolerate people or is neutral about people, but we serve a God of love, and he loves people. He loves all people. And as his followers, we follow him and his example. And so there are things in this world that we get to choose and make choices about. We can choose whom we support. We can choose whom we hang out with. We can choose our values. We can choose who we vote for. We can choose whom we look up to. We can choose whom we admire. We can choose things like who we associate with. But as Christians, there are some things that we don't get to choose. There are some things that we do not get to choose. What we never get to choose as Christians is we do not get to choose whom we love. We don't get to choose who we love. Jesus does not leave that choice open to us. But just as God loves all people, he calls us to do the same. You see, there's a lot of things in this life that we get to choose, but what we do not get to choose is we don't get to choose whom we love. But Jesus says to love God, to love people, and he says to do it without exception. And Jonah's mind in this book is blown by such a gracious God who makes the same kind of demands on us. You see, sometimes our expectations of God will get blown up. And that's okay because God can't be boxed. And when our box gets blown up, what we end up getting is we end up getting God for who he really is. And that is so much greater than anything that we could ever come up with anyways. And we get to experience him. Secondly, this book informs our view of ourselves. In this chapter, we see that Jonah seemed to care about, uh, more about a plant that grew up overnight than he did about a large group of people in a city. It's quite the contrast. You see, the king of Nineveh is sitting inside the city, and he's in great discomfort. He's in sackcloth and ashes. He's humbled and hoping that just perhaps, you know, God's going to relent and that God's going to save his people and save his city. And Jonah is sitting in silence outside the city walls, and he's waiting for it to be destroyed. It's quite a contrast in the two attitudes that are happening in this story. You know, Jonah's sitting out there any day now, God. These are bad people. Let them have it. Let them get what they deserve. And he's sitting there waiting for it to happen. And here we see Jonah's heart. We see that he has prioritized a plant. This gourd, as some translations call it. This comfort. This thing that was breaking him, bringing him shade in the heat that day. Even over what was happening to a whole nation of people right across from him. And so God uses, the, uses this plant as kind of an object lesson of sorts. To show Jonah some grace, he provides a vine, a plant to give him shade and comfort from the scorching heat that he's experiencing that day. You know, think of it as air conditioning. You know, anyone who didn't have air conditioning this summer and found it very hot, good news, we are near the end, all right? Pumpkin spice lattes came out two days ago, so that's a sign. And snow is around the corner. Happy Sunday, right? You know, we're going to get there soon. It's not going to be that hot all the time. But Jonah loves this provision. He loves the comfort and blessing that God has given to him. But then a worm comes. And when this worm comes and eats the plant away and the plant dies, Jonah becomes angry and he himself is even talking about wanting to die at this point. 
You know, talk about dramatic here as you read this book. We've all thought it. You know, people are repenting. God's relenting. And, you know, Jonah is sitting under the shade, enjoying a warm summer day. And you start to reason that in light of all of this, you know, my life might as well just be over. That's the kind of thinking Jonah is doing here. It's an interesting reaction. You see, Jonah seems to love the idea of God's love and God's blessing and provision for him. But he hates the fact that God wants to graciously provide also for the people of Nineveh, his enemies. He can't stand those people. He can't stand what they've done. And maybe we have our own parallels in our own world today that we can insert here as we look at the book of Jonah. You know, I have found that watching CNN for a week can be a moment of spiritual struggle in my life, right? Just turning on the news and watching some of the things you see happening across the world. You know, all sorts of evil, war, fighting, hate, racism, crimes, all sorts of stuff. And the last thing when you see these things, the last thing that ever comes to mind when you're watching these stories is this idea that God's love is still for everybody. And that God loves all people, even our enemies. You see, God isn't merely interested in Jonah's comfort here with this vine, with this plant. He uses this to teach him a lesson. But what God cares about is Jonah's character. And I believe that goes for us today as well. God is showing Jonah how he has become so wrapped up in himself, enjoying temporary pleasures more than eternal things that other people are facing. God says, you care about the little plant that I provided? Well, guess what? I care about people. God says to Jonah, you take great joy in that plant flourishing, and you have great despair when that plant dies, when it perishes. But God would say to Jonah, you know, I have great despair when people perish, but I take great joy when people flourish. And God reveals Jonah's heart here and uses a plant, a comfort in Jonah's life to illustrate how he has allowed comfort to distract him, how he's allowed this comfort and his own, you know, bias and his own anger to distract him from what really seems to matter in this situation. And that's people. People being reconciled to the living God, people repenting, people finding God's grace. Number three, it's the final point. This book challenges our view of others as well. You see, one of the ways that our love is different from God's love is that God always values people first. He always puts people first. He never, you know, we sometimes find it easy, and I'll, I'll just speak to myself here, easy to put myself first or my interests first or my desires first or my thinking first. Yet God's always been about people, and he still is today. See, there's an old saying that says this, in God's city, the inhabitants love people and walk on gold, while in man's city, the inhabitants love gold and walk on people. You see, the kingdom of God is a different way. It sets a different standard. It might not necessarily come natural to us, and that's why it wars with us sometimes. But as kingdom-minded people, we are called to live like Jesus, and that's going to require that our view towards other people is the same view of love that we have received ourselves from God. 
and of that same grace that you yourself have experienced, then we need to pass that on. We must pass that on because it's a beautiful thing, and many need to have that beautiful experience in their lives as well. So here's the question. Do we value what God values? God says to Jonah, you put value here on what has the lowest value in the world, and that's this plant, this plant that gives you shade, your comfort here. You felt compassion for it. You cared for it. You cared for something that cost you nothing. However, should I not put more value on human life, whom I've come for and whom desperately needs me? And the book of Jonah ends not with a nice, you know, celebrating ending and not a nice resound where everything's happy, where Jonah, you know, sees his wrong and repents and gets his life on track and he's back, you know, living for God. The book doesn't really end that way. But the book ends with a question. And that question is in verse 11, the last verse of this book. It says, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals and many, you know, we wonder at the end of this book, what happened to Jonah? Did he ever get it? But I think the application here for us today is not the question, did Jonah ever get it? But maybe to ask the question inwardly, do we get it? Have we been enlightened on who God is? Remember, the book of Jonah falls into a category of biblical books called the prophets, and I talked about that earlier. And what did the prophets do? Well, the prophets, you know, they came to groups of religious people and sinful people, and they announced truths to those people that were very hard and difficult for them to hear. And sometimes the prophets themselves even got killed for carrying out these messages. They weren't guaranteed safety by any means. And the book of Jonah is a prophetic book, which means it's a sharp-pointed critique meant to provoke religious people to ask themselves difficult questions about ways in which they had betrayed their God by the way in which they were living. And this book ends with the biblical vision for the world, I believe, and that's this, that God's grace and mercy will triumph over all the things within us that maybe we think other people don't deserve. That his love is greater. His grace is amazing. And to experience that has to transform us. It has to transform the way we look at other people. And so how do we see others? Do we sit and wait like Jonah, hoping for the worst to happen to them and for them to get what they deserve? Or do we allow God's heart to change us and move our hearts to compassion and love for the lost? Do we pray about these things? Do we bring them before him? Do we pick our sides, or do we recognize that in the kingdom there's not really sides to be had, but, but that everyone's loved and everyone's accepted, and God wants to have a relationship with each one of us, regardless of how we feel about one another? Where is our lost priority in all this? Or are the lost a priority at all? That's the, that, this book, I believe, leaves us with difficult things to ponder, and that's a question that comes to mind as I read it. And I believe it's relevant to us today. I believe it's relevant to where we're at. And God leaves us with the question at the end of this book, should he not be concerned for the people in such a great city? And I believe that question becomes one that we must also answer about our own cities right here as well. 
Are we concerned? Do they need to experience him? And so friends, in light of what we've kind of talked about this morning, I encourage you to allow God to shape your life. Allow him to mold your heart. Bring it before him. And remember that you have a great faith to share, a great story to share, and seize those opportunities when they come. And don't become neglectful or distracted, but please seize the opportunities when they present themselves in life. You know, sometimes I wonder how many opportunities I have throughout a day to show God's love and just to share, you know, his message of grace with people, but many times I'm probably distracted by something that I have going on. Look for those opportunities where you can share what he's done for you and bring them to other people because each and every one of us is in the same boat, and we all need him the same. Amen? And so a few closing thoughts to encourage us today. Number one, God's amazing grace is available to each one of us. All we have to do is ask. All we have to do is ask. We need to repent of our sin and ask for his forgiveness today. God's amazing grace is not off limits to anyone. No one should be left out. God's amazing grace should have an effect on how we live and on how we treat each other when we experience that. And finally, we know God's heart and we know what's important to him, but is it also of great importance to us? Are we concerned for such a great city that we live in today, right here and right now? And if so, how can we serve? How can we bring the good news of the love of God and the grace of God to those around us. Is there any place where maybe we've allowed our biases or our opinions to blind us from seeing people in need and who need God's love? I leave that with us this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your word today and how it speaks to us clearly even today. It has the power to change us and shape us, mold us to help us become more like you. And I just pray, Lord, that you would continue to build within each one of us, Lord God, just a love for you and a love for people. A love for our city, a love for our neighbors, a love for our enemies. A love for those who we find easy to love and a love for those who we find difficult to love. Lord, would you continue by your hand just to shape our hearts and shape our lives. And thank you, Lord that you are the God of grace, that you are the God of compassion, and that you are love. And so I pray that as we go into our week, that you would encourage each one of us, strengthen us to walk with you and to live with you today. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll have everyone stand today. Next week, remember, 909-1111. Sit one, serve one. Uh, green cards. Sign me up cards at the Welcome Center. I'd love to have you involved, please. We just uh, would love to have you involved here. But in ancient times, the one who blessed did so by extending hands. And so if you'd like to receive a blessing, please extend your hands today. Here it is. The love, the love of the Lord Jesus, may it draw you to himself. The power of the Lord Jesus, may it strengthen you in service. The joy of the Lord Jesus, may it fill your hearts today, and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, may it be among you and remain with you always. Amen. Amen. Have a great week. We'll see you next week, 909 1111.